As we return to Paul's epistle, you need to remember that a text in an epistle is quite different from a text in the Gospel of John. So therefore, much more expository listening is required. And I can assure you that though this text may not have all the thrills and chills as what we looked at last week in the Gospel of John with Jesus cleansing the temple for the first time, it is equally as important for us to learn from this text as well, and especially today, we will all, starting with me, require extra strength, steel toe conviction boots to get through this text. As I said last time we were here in Colossians, the first two chapters of Colossian contains strong Pauline doctrine concerning the person and the work and the majesty of Jesus Christ and, and involved in that is Paul's counterattacks against the heretics that were coming against the church at Colossae. But, but starting here in chapter three, we get real practical. Now we've already studied verses one through four of this third chapter. So we're going to move on as we do verse by verse. And we just want to start by reading our text today in chapter three of Colossians verses five through nine. Apostle Paul says, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And we're going to stop right there in that part of the ninth verse. That's as far as I can get today. Now get ready. These are some very direct, straightforward, practical truths that we need to understand that will help us all as Christians to grow spiritually. But any buttercups in here need to buckle up. Okay? Notice the phrase in verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body dead. Now, some versions say, kill, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Older versions use the word mortify, meaning put to death. It's all the same thing. The dictionary defines 
suicide as the act of killing oneself intentionally. And spiritually speaking, that is what Paul is calling us all to do with some of the things going on in our Christian lives. Now, you'll remember from last time in verses 1 to 4, we learned all about the great truths of setting our minds on things above and not on things on the earth. And if you've been raised up with Christ into the heavenlies, keep seeking the things above. We went through all of those texts. Well, let me tell you something the Apostle Paul knows. He knows that if we as Christians are going to be able to live that type of risen life in the heavenlies, it's going to have to involve a process of killing the old life in a very practical way. When we get into this kind of teaching, I always find it very necessary to lay some doctrinal groundwork. If you were here in Sunday school, some of that groundwork was already laid. I'm glad you were here. It's going to help. And we just recently went through this. And we've been going through it in Sunday school in Romans 7. But as Christians, we need constant reminders of this just to keep our theological bearings straight so that there is no confusion between justification and sanctification, okay? So let me come at it this way. I'm always trying to explain this from different angles. It's always the same thing. It's something that we can't be reminded of enough. There are two things that we have to hold in our thinking in balance together at the same time when, we un- when we're trying to work through and understand text and how the Christian life works. So, I love to use that word positionally. Okay? So let's put positionally way up here at the top. Positionally. When we came to saving faith in Christ, God, in a sovereign act, killed our old life before we came to faith in Christ. Okay, And he gave us, we just studied this, a new life. And he gave us a new nature as the result of the old nature being killed, crucified with Christ. That's our, that's our position before God. Justified, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as we learned this morning. But what we are... And what has happened to us positionally, remember, positionally, every sin forgiven, past, present, and future, the imputed righteousness of Christ that's not yours, but Christ put on your account, that's the only thing gets you into heaven, no condemnation, all of that that is true about us positionally has to work itself out in us practically in our everyday lives. Are you with me? Okay, so far. Now here's another way to say it. 
what God has done positionally for the Christian, what God has done for you and I as far as our status in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, with no amount of works playing any role in that, you need to work out, Christian, in your own practice, in your day-to-day life, which is not going to be perfect. Okay? Jesus' righteousness put on your account is a perfect righteousness. That's the righteousness you have to have to be able to get into heaven. A perfect righteousness. Perfect obedience to the law all life long. You don't have it. You can't get there. Jesus' perfect righteousness that he attained when he was here on this earth as your substitute is put on your account. That's the righteousness that gets you into heaven. That's positionally. But practically, you're still involved with this battle with the flesh. Are you with me so far? Okay. You've been crucified with Christ. You died to the old life. All of that is dead. But you now live a new life with a new nature. We we just went over that. But in order for us, as Scripture says, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Notice, not work for your salvation, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're going to have to engage in the practical killing of some of the features of that old life that still hangs on with us, that struggle, that we struggle with. So again, I'm laboring this. So I really want you to understand this. Positionally, the old you died. In general, you died to self. You died to self-will. You died to your own ambition as to what you wanted to do with your life. As an aside, I can tell you, I can think back. I didn't know that the Lord was drawing me, but before I was saved, I moralized in the process of the effectual call. And next thing you knew, in 1996, I had a brand new baby who's now sitting here as an adult that I'm very proud of, a nurse today. I had a beautiful home here in Central. I had a great job at a very successful oil company working for a multimillionaire. I had a beautiful wife. I wasn't saved yet. Things were going great from where I was, and you know my past. So I had elevated. If the Lord had not saved me, I can promise you my ambition in life would have been to make as much money as I possibly could, and I was on that track. I had left the drugs and all that behind, and I wanted to make as much money as I possibly could. But guess what? When the Lord saved me, I died to that ambition, okay? By God's grace, since then, I've lived my life to serve God, not to chase the big bucks. And God has blessed me materially by his choice. And even if he hadn't, I'd still be serving him because I still can't get over the fact that he saved me in 1997. So, So we go through... When we come to faith in Christ, this massive change in our lives positionally and in a lot of ways, almost immediately, practically in some areas, there are big changes that happen immediately. I mean, you can ask Christy about that for me, but 
it's not long before as new Christians, we find out as we study and we learn what the Christian life is all about, how hard it is to work at so many areas of the practical part of the Christian life every single day in our struggle with our flesh. And Paul knows that we need some instruction here. So like he always does, after laying solid theological groundwork, now here in Colossians in this portion of chapter 3, he gets down to the practical stuff. As Nacho Libre would say, the nitty-gritty. If you know that movie, if you don't, don't worry about it. If we are complete in Christ, and he's all we need, and I need to set my mind on things above and live a godly life, well, how am I going to get that done, Paul? Well, Paul's answer here in our text is we're going to need to start killing some things in our lives. Kind of like what Jesus said in Luke 9.23. You look inside that verse, you need to take up your cross. Luke 9.23, what does it say next? Daily, he said, and follow him. Daily, you have to take up your cross. That's what the Christian life is. Why did Paul say this? I die daily, okay? Here in responsibility land where we live, saying no to self, no to self-desire, no to the things of the world. I'm telling you, it's a daily killing field. And some days you do better than on other days. It's really a radical way to live when you think about it. When you look at how other people live that are outside of Christ, especially. Now look at verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body dead. Now, again, stop there. King James says, kill, therefore, your members which are in the earth. You know, in the Greek, this is a point of action. Come to the point in your life where you make a definite commitment to these things that they are going to die. Extremely sadly, there have been many people for centuries and still to this day who have interpreted this passage in a very physical way. And I've told you about them before, like the priest who will wear a belt of nails under their shirt. But before his conversion, Luther would flagellate himself with a whip. And people like this think, well, I'm killing my flesh. I'm suffering for my sin with these nails piercing my skin. But folks, that is clearly not at all what Paul is talking about in this text. That's never going to fix the problem at hand. What Paul is talking about is, spiritually speaking, the elimination from our lives, the things that are against God, that displease God. Romans 8.13 is very helpful here, where it says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit, 
Christian, you are putting to death the deeds of the body you will live. And so you see what he means in putting to death. It's not killing the body. It's not whipping yourself with a whip. Look what it says. Putting to death the deeds of the body. For example, we have to work at dealing with putting to death self-centeredness in our lives, don't we? Well, you got to work at not being self-centered, don't you? And like I said, initially, initially there's some big changes, but it's not long before you realize that there is a tremendous struggle that you're involved with every day in the Christian life, every single day. And the longer that you're in it, the more intense you realize that it is. And that intensity just keeps getting stronger as you grow spiritually and then you die and the war is over. That's how it works. But while we're here, although we are new creatures on the inside, we have to struggle with the old outside and that is the daily battle. Now, Notice verse 5 again. And Paul says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. He uses that term members in Romans as well when dealing with that subject because he knows of the association that sin has with our bodily members. It's our bodily members that get us into trouble when we don't have them under control, especially that, right? The members produce the effects mentioned in the list of sins that we're fixing to look at in this fifth verse. And this list is not by any stretch of the imagination exhaustive, but it's a pretty good sampling of things that we all, all struggle with. And the same goes with the list that we're going to look at in verse 8, because there's two, two lists. The first list contains unholy kinds of love and the second list, wicked kinds of hate. So let's put our boots on and let's look at this first list. These are fleshly things that we have to deal with that Paul is calling all of us to kill in our lives. Look next in verse five. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Immorality, that refers to any kind of sexual sin. And then impurity goes beyond the sexual acts of sin to encompass sinful thoughts and intentions as well. And then you got passion and evil desire. Just those are similar terms that refer to lust. Passion being the physical side, evil desire the mental side, and then lastly, greed. Also translated covetousness. The Greek word literally means to have more. It's the insatiable desire to gain what you don't have, but especially to gain the things that you don't have that are forbidden. That's at its strongest point. And then Paul says, which amounts to idolatry. So you notice as we read through this, there's a whole sequence here 
Wrapping up with man is ever wanting what is forbidden. And what it really all boils down to is that man is idolatrous. Because when you say, I want what I want, no matter what God says, you're actually worshiping yourself instead of him. And it's really just that simple. Now, you can get all squeamish if you want to with this subject matter. But it's here in the Bible. And we all know that all of this is real life stuff. So we're going to deal with it and we're not going to skip over it. It's in here because God knows our frame. He knows us. He made us. He knows what makes us tick. And guess what else he knows? He knows what's best for us. He knows the best way for us to live. And so he inspires Paul to write this down to help us to understand that these are things that we need to be about putting to death in our lives because that's what's best for us. In fact, if you study Scripture and you go all the way through, you will find that there are few things in God's attitude that he's more serious about than the types of things that we find here in verse number five. In the Old Testament, this kind of evil was punished with death. Adultery was punished with death. And guess what? God's attitude hadn't changed about that. His actions towards us in the new covenant are certainly more gracious and long-suffering, but his attitude hasn't changed. Overlooking all of this list here is the reality that God forbids sexual activity outside of marriage, period. There's no gray area. There's no bending of the rules in that reality at all whatsoever. Doesn't matter whether people like it or not. That's God's rules. Immorality here in verse 5 refers to unlawful sexual relationships. Pretty cut and dried. And then next, impurity. Sinful thoughts. This is in the area of the mind. You know what the Jews used to think? Well... As long as you don't commit the outward act, you're okay. I knew a preacher who used to think like that. God help him. But remember what Jesus said. If you look upon a lover and lust after them, you have committed adultery where? In your heart. That's the deepest part of the understanding of the commandment to not commit adultery. John MacArthur says, if you control your thoughts, you'll control the body. If you control your mind, you'll control the emotion. It's the mind that really controls the behavior. This is where the battle starts and really where the battle rages for the Christian. Sinful thoughts produce sinful actions, just like righteous thoughts produce righteous deeds. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Formed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. That's why he's going to say a little later here in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Why do I quote that? Well, that's how you battle this. Get in your Bible. 
and let the word of Christ be the controlling influence in your mind. And you can't put it under your pillow like when you're sleeping, like when you were in elementary school, thinking that it's just going to seep through the pillow and get in there. While you're awake, you got to crack it open and study it and learn it and understand it. And I want you to remember, too, the original people that Paul is writing to here. He's saying something real new to the ancient pagan world. The most of them are a relationship outside of magic, uh, outside of marriage. No big deal. Who cares? That, no stigma to that. They could do whatever they wanted to do. Sadly, that's become much like our society today, right? If you tell somebody you don't believe in sex outside of marriage, they, they kind of look at you like you're crazy. How wild is it that it wasn't really that terribly long ago in our country that if a young woman in a community got pregnant while not being married, it was a huge scandal in the town, especially if a teenager got pregnant out of wedlock. It was a scandal. They might would ship her off sometimes. Boy, how far have we fallen from that kind of culture today. It ain't no big deal anymore. Teenagers and people getting pregnant out of wedlock. And the primary culprit, you know what the primary culprit has been in our in our nation's history because of this? The secularization of our society. And it's getting worse with every year that goes by. And that's why we have to understand Put your mindset here. The average unbelieving person is not ever going to think anything different than what the world system thinks. So you got to remember that when you're dealing with people. I mean, I certainly didn't. I'm just being honest and open and as transparent as I can possibly be. I didn't see sex outside of marriage as any kind of problem whatsoever. Didn't bother me one bit. And that's as far as I'll go with that subject on a personal level while I'm preaching from a pulpit. Okay? But I didn't. The average unregenerate person, of course, has no insight into the Word of God. They have no resident truth teacher in the Holy Spirit, like a believer does. They have no motive to obey Scripture. I mean, sure, some people are more moral than others, but they're not moral with the right motives. Not with the motive to, mo to glorify God. And that's the only right overarching motive for why we do anything in our lives, to bring glory to our Maker. So Paul lists next passion and evil desire. And as I said over, earlier, those are similar terms. They refer to lust, passion being the physical side and evil desire the mental side. And then that, that last term, greed, in the New American Standard, very, very interesting. Also translated covetousness. That's an old timer. That's the Ten Commandments. Desiring something that's not yours, but in the deepest understanding, what is forbidden. And, and Paul says what this really amounts to is idolatry. Now, why does he say that? Why, why does he connect it to idolatry? Well, as I said, 
as you live your life, you either worship God or you worship yourself. If you truly worship the true God, then you want to do what pleases God, right? But if you worship yourself, you don't care what pleases God. And and self says, I want that. It doesn't matter what that is. Be false religion, any, any other thing. I want that. And so you bow then at the shrine of self. And the Greek word for greed or really better translated covetousness has to do more beyond that. To have wasn't what is not yours to have. To have what is not yours to have. The Greeks used the word to describe insatiable desire. One Greek writer said, you mind as easily satisfied as a fill a bowl with a hole in it. It can't be satisfied. So, it's pretty simple. You either do what you know God wants and you worship God or you worship self, you violate God and you set yourself up as the one to be satisfied. And that's why Paul says all of it amounts to idolatry. That's why he says it. MacArthur writes, when God said, you shall have no other gods before me, he included you as one of those gods. Now check this out. Deep down covetousness, when when it's directed toward money, it ends up in stealing. When it's directed towards fame, it ends up in boasting and doing whatever it takes to get it. Just go look at some of the lives of the Hollywood stars and you'll see examples of the destruction that that causes. When it's directed toward success, it ends up in selfish ambition and hurting other people and doing whatever it takes to get there. When it's directed towards power, it ends up in tyranny. And we've seen that throughout world history. And when it's directed toward a person, it ends up in sexual sin, the desire to have, self-seeking greed. And that is why all listed here. Now, let me tell you how to kill this. You ready? One word. We already studied it. Contentment. Remember? We learned what Paul said. I have learned. In whatever state I am in, therewith to be content. Whether you're married or you're single, whether you have a lot of money or not that much, your attitude as a Christian is, God, you are sovereign, and I am content with where you have me in life, no matter where that is. I am content with my situation in life where you have me. I am content with my job. I am content with my personal possessions. You are in control of it all. You own it all. You direct it all. I don't want to have anything more than whatever it is that you have decided to give me. That's contentment. I'm not saying it's easy to get there. Because that's why Paul said I had to learn how to get there. Right? So you got to work at being content with where God has you in this life. 
You have to grow to get to contentment. You have to grow in your trust in God that he knows exactly what is best for you. That's where he has you, where you're at right now in your life. And the only way to grow in your trust in God is to continue to get to know him better. And you already know the answer of how to do that, right? Concentrate on his word. That's the only place where you learn God. That's the only place where you get to know him. The more you know him, I promise you, the more you'll trust him. Now, before we get to list two, and I promise I'm going to make list two quicker because don't think this is any more comfortable for me than it is for you. Next, before we get to that list, Paul stops in between the two lists and he gives us some reasons for why we need to be killing these things in our lives. Look at the first one in verse six. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So in general, the first reason not to do these things is that God is going to act in judgment. And then next in verse seven. And in them you also once walked past tense when you were past tense living in them. So the second reason is that's a part of your used to be, Christian. Two good reasons. The wrath of God will come upon you. And number two, for Christians, it's inconsistent with your new life. Now, we know from Scripture that God is holy and His constant, never-changing, ever-present reaction against the sin of man is wrath, holy justice. And the question for us is this, Christian, if the wrath of God comes upon the people who do these things, why as a Christian, do we want to do these things? That's the question we have to ask. We really are so hard-headed, aren't we? If those are the things for which people are damned and not blessed, and you really want to live the best way to live life on this earth, which is God's way, why do we keep returning to these things? And don't forget, though we will never, ever be eternally judged by the wrath of God because Jesus absorbed all the wrath due to us in his body on the cross. Though that's true, yes, we'll never experience. Learned it in Sunday school this morning. No condemnation for those who are in faith in Christ Jesus. But guess what, Christian? God will chasten us in this life for doing these things. Like the hand of a corrective parent when you were a kid. You know Hebrews 12, 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. He does that in our lives. 
That's for our good. Now, as I've asked you many times, I want you to really think about this. Honestly, answer this question. What days, Christian, are the best days of your life? When you're walking in the flesh? Or when you're walking in the spirit? What days are the best days that you have? Is there any better afternoon that you could possibly have after spending the morning witnessing a gospel conversation to an unbeliever? Is there any afternoon better than that? After you leave, you know you've done your job. You've been an ambassador for Christ. You shared the gospel. And that's when life is best. Now listen, God knows what's best for us in regards as to how we are to live our lives out in this earth. And so that's why he has to chasten us when we get out of line and we get to walking in the flesh. Not because he's mad at us. He certainly doesn't have wrath for us because Jesus took all our wrath to get us in line because he knows what's best. Think about it. We so easily slip into behaving in ways for which God is one day going to destroy the world. Think about that. And included when chastening, there are natural consequences for sin. Did you know that? Think about David. Think about the price he paid for his sin with Bathsheba all the rest of his life. His child's death broke his heart. Every one of his children went off the rails. His son tried to steal his throne and murder him. Consequences. So Paul says in verse 7, and in them you once walked when you were living in them. Again, that was your used to be. It shouldn't be you now. If you're a new creature in Christ, sitting in here today in the church on Sunday morning, do you really think that it's ever going to go well for you when you act like an old one? Think about that. Now let's get to list number two. Very simple. Very common. Look at verse eight. These are a little different. These sins are not so personal. They're more social. They're more related to speech. But look in verse eight. And then what starts out in verse nine. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And then verse 9 starts out with, do not lie to one another. So again, these are things that's got to go. Put them all aside, he says. The word for put them all aside in the Greek is used for taking your clothes off. And what he is saying is just like a man at the end of the work day who comes home to take his dirty work clothes off in the same way you should take off the dirty rags of your old life. And you want to know something wild? As believers, we throw away the old and we get a robe of righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ, and then we go right back and put the old dirty rags on top of the imputed robe of righteousness. Isn't that wild? That's why Paul is having to get on to us here about putting them all aside. And he gives us another little sample list here. Look at the first one in verse 8. Oh, boy. Anger. 
I'm still a work in progress on that one. Let me tell you what the Greek word. This is a deep down, smoldering, resenting, bitterness, slow burning anger on the inside all the time. This is that person who is just angry in general all the time. You ever met that guy? Huh? One little thing, one little thing can just set them off. And that can happen to any of us on certain days, right? But this person is just constantly complaining and ticked off all the time. You ever met that person? Have you ever met people who are not like that? No matter what happens, man, their blood pressure just never rises. They're just like, hey, what's up? God bless them, right? This is not that kind of person. And this kind of anger gives away to what it says next. Look in verse eight, wrath. That's when it blows up. The smoldering anger on the inside, like like setting fire to a real dry, dead Christmas tree. You ever did that? Now, this happens with folks pretty regularly who carry around that deep-seated anger all the time. They live with a chip on their shoulder. They don't understand why they're here. I didn't ask for this life. There's always trouble. There's always constant problems. And something pops off and boom, China syndrome, nuclear reactor number five goes off when any little thing happens. And Paul is saying, Christian, if you're dealing with that, You've got to put that down. You've got to put that aside. And then next in verse 8 on the list, we get the word malice, referring to the damage caused by evil speech. And this can be connected to that smoldering anger that, that then comes out of the mouth. And what comes out of the mouth will look next. Slander. Now, Do you really want to get convicted today? Well, it's fixing to happen. Try this. Every time you slander a person, you slander God. Why do I say that? Because of this, the basic dignity of man who is made in God's image. And we forget all about this when we call somebody an idiot, even when they deserve it. Remember James chapter 3, verse 9, speaking of the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. I am at the head of the list right here, okay? Especially with politicians, especially with Democrats. I'm at the top of the list. But the reality is, when we slander another person, we blaspheme God who made that person in his image. It's true. And man, we, we can get rough with this, right? Look how stupid that person is. Huh? Look how they look. Look how they act. Dress. I hate to tell you, but Jesus took this really seriously. Listen to Matthew 5, 22, 
Look at it with me. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. But whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You think he took it serious? God is simply saying, don't go around calling people fools or using derogatory terms. And don't teach your kids to do that. You're disparaging those made in the image of God. God is serious about the dignity of all people, believers and unbelievers, all is image bearers. Now, understand, listen carefully, it's a very general reality. We do need to call out false prophets by name. The Bible calls us to do that. We need to call a spade a spade with evil people. That's a different subject, okay? But remember, God will deal with the evil people of the world, every one of them. And yes, it's a mighty struggle for us to keep ourselves from saying things about all kinds of people. And I'm first in line right here. I'm at the top of the list in the room. This is something that we all have to work at killing. Starting with me. We can't bless God with the same mouth that we curse people with. Lastly, are you glad it's lastly? Verse 8. Almost lastly. Give us, Paul gives us abusive speech. Put abusive speech from your mouth. Real simple in the Greek, obscene language. Christians are capable of committing all manner of sins, including obscene language. Goes hand in hand with slander. In Ephesians 4, Paul basically says, look, if you're going to say something, say what is edifying, necessary, and gracious, or keep your mouth shut. <laughs> That's a good, good one to follow, Right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that old flesh rises up, starting with me. We have to work at killing the things that we shouldn't be saved. Lastly, now I promise this is lastly. Start of verse 9. I don't know why I keep putting lastly on here. Lastly, verse 9, he says, Do not lie to one another. Now, you know as well as I do, lying has been a problem since Genesis. I mean, you just go through the Old Testament. Satan lied to Eve. Adam and Eve lied to God. Cain lied to God about his brother. Abraham lied about Sarah. Sarah lied to the angel. Isaac lied, denying Rebekah was his wife. I mean, I can just keep going on and on and on and on and on about all the lying and just in the Old Testament. What did Jesus say? Satan is the father of lies. What a terrifying description that is to me. Let me ask you, if believers can't speak the truth, who in the world can? All of these things are things we have to work at killing in our lives on a daily basis. Basis. And again, the major way that you go about doing this is by controlling what goes into your mind because what goes in is what's going to come out. Well, now that we've all been sufficiently convicted, 
starting with me in first, pre- in first place. How about let's pray? Father, we do thank you, Lord. We need it. It don't feel good. No, it don't. It calls us out. That's what the Bible is supposed to do for Christians. Oh, God, please help all of us to understand the balance between justification and sanctification, between law and gospel. Help us to understand that while there's no condemnation for us, all our sins are forgiven by faith alone, not any part of our works. At the same time, you've ordained for us to struggle with our flesh and with our sin. That's what you've ordained. So we we hold both those realities in our hand. And we know them to be both true. And we're living here now. We're still in this world. So help us. Let the joy of the gospel and our no condemnation status be the motivation that helps us to kill these things. We recognize. Lord, that, 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 that when we succeed, our success is not done in order to be saved, but because of the fact that we have been. And we give all the glory to you. And when we fail, we take all the responsibility. And that's how you've made it for us in the Christian life. Oh, I pray, Lord, that your people have understood this today. And again, I pray if any here not come to faith in Christ, you'd use the word preached today by the, in the power of your spirit bring one into the family of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.